You could be seated. Well, God has made us creatures of story. We tell stories. We read and watch stories. We hear stories from each other. We make up stories. How does one go about beginning a story? Or at least beginning it well? How do good stories begin? We can think of some famous examples. Twas the night before Christmas. Or just simply, once upon a time, as many fairy tales begin. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So Dickens began his tale of two cities. Or, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Those are the opening lines to Star Wars. And the Bible sort of famously begins with this line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are poetic, memorable, now famous beginnings of stories. Beginnings situate things, don't they? Beginnings succinctly and memorably give us clues about the setting, the time, the place, sometimes even the characters. How does the New Testament begin? We saw how the Old began, Genesis 1.1. How does the New Testament begin? Or we could similarly ask, how does the story of Jesus begin? Or we could ask, how does the Bible introduce to us the story of Christmas. And we have four examples of that in the Bible. We call them gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of what we call the New Testament. The last of them, John, begins his account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus by taking us back to the beginning of time, the beginning that Genesis 1-1 spoke of. So John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mark, his gospel account, he too uses that Genesis-like beginning language. He speaks of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Rather prosaically, Luke begins his account of Jesus with a dedication to an unknown dude, Theophilus. But Matthew, Matthew begins his story of Jesus with a genealogy. A 42-point genealogy. He gives us Jesus' roots, his ancestry, before he tells us anything about the story of Jesus. Now, for those of you who are interested in your own ancestry, you've spent some time on Ancestry.com or the like, well, this might be right up your alley. You get excited to hear that the story of Jesus in Matthew begins with his genealogy. Hmm, interesting. But for the rest of us who haven't done that, Matthew's beginning... We would have to say, seems like an unspectacular beginning. It's not a poetic beginning. 
it's not a memorable beginning. Most of us do, do not have the first line memorized, let alone the 42 names. But it is a very important and very telling beginning. And we need it. And so turn there with me to Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles. Matthew 1. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put the text up on the screen in just a bit. In recent months, we've been in the book of Genesis. And last week, Chase got us to Genesis chapter 11. But that's a good time for us to hit pause in our series in Genesis and for us to turn our attention to the New Testament for a while especially in view of the Advent season. And besides, I think that you'll see today that Genesis 1 through 11 over the last few months has really provided us with some helpful background to this first book of the New Testament, Matthew, which again begins seemingly unspectacularly, but that is just seemingly so. Let's read the first 17 verses of Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashan. And Nashan, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abiah, and Abiah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheeltel, and Sheeltel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiod, Abiod, and Abiod, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azar. And Azar, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achaim. And Achaim, the father of Elud. And Elud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, with 40 names stretching approximately 2,000 years, where do we focus our attention? 
What should we make of this? Well, of course, the focus should be on Christ, Jesus Christ. We're told at the very beginning that this is his genealogy, and of course, it culminates with his birth. So we know to focus on Jesus here. Let me suggest five main observations about Jesus. So not the tidbits, not every name in the genealogy, just five main observations That'll occupy 95% of our time, but towards the end, eventually, I want to get to some oddities, some hidden gems in the genealogy that we may miss if we only go looking for Jesus and the connections to him. But first, five observations about Jesus from this passage. The first is that Jesus marks a new beginning He marks a new beginning. Matthew wants us to somewhat read between the lines that he's introducing Jesus to us as a new beginning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, since we've been in Genesis in recent days, that phrase, the book of the genealogy, might strike a chord with you. Remember that Genesis has Ten of these kinds of sayings. We called them bookmarks or kind of like chapter headings. Genesis 2 4 is one of them. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then Genesis 5 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. We get another one in chapter 6, verse 9 with Noah. These are the generations of Noah, and so on. Well, Matthew is alluding to that Genesis motif as he begins his book. And what's more, the Greek word for genealogy in Matthew 1.1 is the Greek word Genesis. How's that for an allusion to Genesis? It actually says Genesis. Matthew is deliberately reminding us of that book of beginnings, Genesis, But here he's giving to us the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Jesus marks a new beginning in God's plan. A new beginning doesn't mean that Jesus comes out of nowhere. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have continuity with what came before. No, that's exactly the whole point of the genealogy to tie him into who and what came before but this is a hard reset you could say the arrival of the Christ is the most significant event to have taken place up to that point and since a whole new world dawned upon this fallen world when Jesus took on flesh. No, we haven't yet seen it in all of its fullness, this whole new world, but it has dawned. The prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel as well, but they they prophesied of a time to come, an age to come, hundreds of years before Jesus actually came. And they spoke of it as really a new thing, That's the language in Isaiah 43, where God says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. 
I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. It's passages like that, that Desert Springs Church gets its name. God said through Isaiah, I'm going to do a new thing, rivers in the desert. And Jesus shows up and speaks of rivers flowing out of him to the spiritually thirsty. The prophets spoke of a, a new covenant to come. And they spoke of one specifically to come who would usher all these things in. He would be God's son. He'd be son of David. He'd be the true and final king. In Isaiah, he's called the servant. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. I will bring forth justice to the nations. The prophets announced that God would do a new thing, that a new day or age would come, that one would come who would accomplish this age and these blessings, and that one is also called the Christ. That's why it says here, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. That's his title. It means Messiah or anointed. It means that Jesus is the one. He's the promised one. He's the long-expected one, as we already have sung this morning. But then Matthew adds in verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, giving us the main points to look for in the rest of the genealogy. And sure enough, verse 2 starts with Abraham and works out from him. And then verse 6 gets to King David and works out from him. And then verse 16 lands on Jesus. All of this is in line with what came before. All of this in fulfillment of people that led the way. But Something new, a new thing, a new beginning. Secondly, Jesus is son of Abraham in this genealogy. He's son of Abraham. And why does that matter? Well, in the book of Genesis, we've been seeing the importance of lineage and offspring for God's promises to redeem this fallen world. It starts in Genesis 3, verse 15, where God promised that through the seed, or the offspring of the woman, God would one day crush the head of the serpent and defeat him. And we saw the promises to Noah and his sons are relevant, and that's why Luke 3 in that genealogy of Jesus, actually traces its origins back to and through Noah. And then just last week, Chase began to introduce us to the promises that God made to Abraham and his offspring. Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise, that covenant we call, the Abrahamic covenant, it's repeated in chapter 15, verse 17, uh, chapter 17, 
it's really, it's repeated again and again all through the whole book of Genesis to successive generations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. God kept saying, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we find a passage like Galatians chapter 3, where Paul is commenting extensively on that Abrahamic covenant. So listen to Galatians 3, verse 16, where Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And he, Paul points out, notice it doesn't say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but it says offspring, referring to one. Of course, Abraham's offspring would be many, but Paul notes that there's a play on that word offspring. Offspring can be many, and it can be one. And God, he's saying, had plans to bless the nations through, yes, a nation that would give us one. Jesus. God would bless the world not through a disobedient nation, but through his obedient son, the perfect Israelite, the perfect son of Abraham. And we, regardless of our ethnic heritage, can get in on that through faith in Christ, belief in him. Galatians 3, verse 8. Paul says the scriptures back then, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Paul says, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Or as he says at the end of that chapter, if you are Christ's, you're in him, then you are Abraham's offspring, Heirs according to the promise. Now, where did Paul get that teaching? Well, he was simply unpacking the whole Bible. He was unpack, unpacking God's plan on a whole Bible reading. And it's why Matthew opens with a genealogy that traces Jesus' roots back to Abraham. It matters. Hope for this fallen world had to come through the offspring of Abraham and Jesus has the credentials to be the long-awaited blessing to the nations. He's a son of Abraham. Thirdly, he is son of David. Jesus is son of David. Verse 2 to verse 6, trace the lineage from Abraham to David. And verse 6 in following, traces the offspring that comes from David. And here we need to get in the weeds a little bit of the Old Testament again, but in a different part, 2 Samuel 7. That's where we go to find another covenant. We mentioned the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis. In 2 Samuel 7, we have the covenant that God made with David, the king. And God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now those are some lofty promises. A throne, a reign that lasts forever in one of David's offspring. I'm sure David and others who knew of 2 Samuel 7 were on the watch right away. Just like Eve was, just like Noah's dad was. Is this the one? Is this the one? I'm sure David was wondering, is Solomon the one? And God used Solomon for a time. Solomon was the one that built the temple. But no, Solomon was not the one. Godless women turned his heart away from God. And God divided the nation into two under Solomon because of Solomon's sin. Solomon's not the one. Would it be Rehoboam next in this genealogy? I mean, he tried to reunite the split nation. That sounds pretty good. Well, no, it wasn't. He tried to heal things by force. And he turned out to be a pretty bad king. And that list of kings that followed from David, verses 7 to 11, you might not know those names, but they're in the Bible elsewhere, and we find as we hunt them down, there's a checkered past going on with these Davidic kings. They, they were checkered at best. There were some good ones in there, but even the best of them still died. They didn't last forever. And then the bad ones replaced them. And the bad ones were often bad enough that they couldn't die soon enough. And yet even in these years of good king, bad king, good kings that die, bad kings that replace them, the promise and covenant of 2 Samuel 7 still looms large in the rearview mirror. It's still in the consciousness of God's people, at least it, it should be. But it was still... TBD, to be determined. When's God going to do this? How's he going to do this? Davidic kings keep dying? And so many of them are not even godly, let alone perfect. In fact, in these days of waiting and waiting, the prophets even enlarge the expectation. They enlarge the promises and that's what Rachel read for us already from Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, let's just keep this in mind. Maybe if you want to turn there, Isaiah chapter 11. I just want to have us camp out on the first verse of it. Eventually, as Rachel read for us, it gets very lofty. Speaking of God overturning the curse completely. Kids playing over the den of cobras safely. That's, that's a reorientation of the whole created order that's fallen right now. And so there's some now and not yet, as we say, that happens on this side of Isaiah 11. But let's just notice verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
Now, Jesse is David's father. You've got to try to picture this. Picture there's a stump. And out of the stump grows a shoot that bears fruit, a branch, an offspring of the stump, which is Jesse. But there's also a root going on here. There's also a root that bears fruit. How is there a root and a shoot? How is there one who is before Jesse and comes after Jesse? Oh, it's Jesus, son of God, son of David. Jesus is the only one who has ever been both before Jesse and also comes after and from the line of Jesse. Or perhaps you'd be more familiar with Isaiah 9, especially at Christmas time. Remember these familiar words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. If we were in Luke chapter 1, we'd point out that the angel tells Mary that this one born to her would sit on the throne of his father David and he will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. In other words, he's the fulfillment of what God promised long ago in 2 Samuel 7, which for so long was TBD. David is really important to the Christmas story. Not really David, but David as a foreshadow, David as the one who inherited promises that Jesus would later pick up and fulfill and that's why so many of our Christmas songs have David in them. We sang already, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. So get this, Christmas doesn't go back just 2,000 years to a manger. In Bethlehem, it goes back way before that. It doesn't come out of nowhere. This was long expected. And Jesus is the only one who has the credentials to be the son of Abraham, the son of David. He comes from royal stock. Even more than that, he is uniquely eternal he isn't like those good kings during the days of the prophets who unfortunately would always come to breathe their last. He is eternal and he is perfect. And he came to usher in a perfect, eternal kingdom. That's what Matthew is all about, the king and his kingdom. That's Matthew's unique contribution of emphasis to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we'll see it again and again in days ahead. Jesus is the king who brings in God's 
kingdom. Fourth, Jesus is son of Mary. He's the son of Mary. You can feel the genealogy reaching its culmination in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, something subtle takes place in verse 16, contrasted with the verses that came before. It's a subtle shift. Verses 2 to 15 list all kinds of generations that just go like this. This is the father of, this is the father of, he was the father of, this was the father of, the father of is the repeated phrase. And then you get to verse 16, and we hear of Joseph, he had a father, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. It's subtle, but it's pointing to the fact that Joseph was not technically the father of Jesus. And Matthew will tell us in the second half of chapter 1, which we'll see next week, how all this went down. It's the virgin birth. But here we just get the slightest hint of what's to come, that Jesus' birth was real, but it wasn't like anyone's birth that came before. Looking back now, we can see that it had to be this way. The Savior of this world had to be God because the problem was so big. And yet he had to be born because he had to be like one of us. He died for us. And that, that reality of the divine and the human in one person, it blows the mind and we'll spend another month with our minds blown afresh as we do every Advent season. But, but, but it was there all along and it had to be that way. The long-awaited one would be born, in fact, born of a certain lineage. But the problem of sin is so massive that no mere mortal could pull it off. We need God. I mentioned at the beginning that there are different ways to begin a story. And one of the most common is once upon a time in a land far, far away. And that usually clues us in that the story to follow is a fairy tale. It's almost like saying, never mind when this was or where it was, it's all make-believe anyway. Well, notice that the Christmas story doesn't begin anything like that. Matthew begins with a gritty genealogy. He lists real historical people. He pieces together from ancient genealogies of the Old Testament and also available records in his own day. The historian, the first century historian, Josephus, tells us that there were extensive genealogical records available in the first century. And so Jesus was a real person. If you're not yet a Christian, you need to grasp that. You need to come to terms with that. Jesus wasn't a myth, a spirit, an angel, a vision, an alien. He didn't come out of nowhere. 
He had roots, important roots. His birth was not only real, not only true, not only historical, not only physical, but it was anticipated. And those 40 names, 40 plus names here listed before Jesus represent generations and generations of people who were waiting and longing and watching. And then he comes. And that's quite a story. It's not just a story. It's almost, we could say, the story. It is the definitive story. It is the most important thing that has ever happened. So fifth, Jesus is the interpretive key to the whole Bible. Jesus is the interpretive key. We get that from the whole of the genealogy that's driving straight towards Jesus all the way back from Abraham. We also get it in this summary of verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I'll explain these 14 generations a bit in just a little bit here. But I want to just argue that Matthew is showing us, Matthew has been arguing to us that Jesus is the centerpiece, the focal point, the interpretive key to the whole Bible. None of it makes any sense without him unlocking it. The story culminates in Jesus, obviously. The story of God is literally embodied by Jesus. You know, there are dozens of genealogies in the Bible. Dozens. They're all over the place. Like it or not. If you're reading through the Bible in a year, you know that. Did you know that Matthew 1 and Luke 3 are the last two? There's still a lot of Bible left, isn't there? Why do the genealogies come to a screeching halt with Matthew 1 and Luke 3? Because the whole purpose of the genealogies before were to get us to the one. And once he arrives, you don't need to keep track anymore. Oh, if you want to learn whether you are one of Napoleon's many offspring, go ahead and do it. If you like to celebrate your Spanish or Hispanic heritage, go for it. But we get in on God's blessing to the nations now by receiving and welcoming and worshiping Christ. And that's it. And again, as Galatians taught us, ethnicity matters nothing. Again, verse 17, there are 14 generations, Abraham to David. 14 generations, David to Babylon. And 14 generations from Babylon to Christ. Now, why 14? Well, there definitely were more generations than 14 or 40-some, if you add them up. Matthew's skipping some well-known names. That's okay. Genealogies do that. 
He's doing something more than editing for just concision. He has this number in mind, 14. Is there significance to the number 14? Some say yeah. Seven, you probably know, is important in the Bible. Here are multiples of sevens, you could say. If that's the case, then some point out that Christ is actually the seventh seven listed here. Okay, maybe. It might be there. I don't know. I don't know why 14, but I do know that Matthew is providing for us Old Testament mile markers, bookmarks, breadcrumbs. Matthew shows us how to read the Old Testament with this tripart breakdown of the Old Testament. And that's important for us, especially if we're going to disciple our kids if we're going to teach them Bible stories, if we want our kids to grow up being Bible people, if we want new Christians to begin to understand this big old book that we put before them, even the big old, old Testament with its 39 books stretching millennia with different genres, hundreds of stories, countless characters and events and places, how do you keep it all straight? It can feel cumbersome and overwhelming. I think I was, not until I was in my married years, that I was getting down some basic Bible chronology. I would just hear as a kid this story and that story, and I wasn't quite sure about the order. My wife helped me out. I'd say, so which one's that? Which one goes there? She'd help me, and... and we, we have an Old Testament that can feel cumbersome and overwhelming, and here is a helpful breakdown. It's one story, one grand story, driving toward Jesus, and there were three eras that led up to it. There was the era of the patriarchs, from Father Abraham to King David. There was this era of the kings, from King David until there was no king because of the exile, Babylon. And then there was this era of exile and following what some have called the era of the prophets, in which God's people grew increasingly restless and ready for the coming of the Christ. Exile. In doing this breakdown like this, in giving this emphasis on Babylon, Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the hope for exile. Now, now bear with me. Let's think about this. Why this emphasis? Why, why put a pin on the deportation to Babylon? It's mentioned four times in our passage. That's referring, of course, to the Babylonian captivity when God's people were taken captive by the Babylonians. They were put under foreign pagan rule in a foreign land with no king, no more temple, no more city of their own. It was God's punishment for this nation, these, these people's persistent sin. And Matthew insists that that is a turning point in the Old Testament story. He tells us that this is one of those key eras of the Old Testament. And it stretched, how long? 70 years, some might say. 
Yeah, 70 years, kind of. Kind of 70 years. It was after 70 years that some of the people began to be allowed to head back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the walls and the temple. It's a story you can read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. But they never again had a king on the throne. 2 Samuel 7 was still TBD. In all those years post-Babylon, God's people remained under a foreign rule. First the Persians, then the Romans. And so many faithful Jews in Jesus' day had been believing that God's people were still kind of exiled. They were at home without a home. They were in Jerusalem, but it wasn't their own. And out of that angst and waiting and exhaustion, 500 years of exile of sorts, 400 years of prophetic silence, is he ever going to come? Will it ever happen? Will he let his promises fall to the ground? No, Jesus came. He came. Paul says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. This is a reminder to us that our God is sovereign, in control, and right on time, even when it feels like he's not. Can you imagine living in those days, sitting on the prophetic promises of this one to come is going to make it all right? And waiting and waiting, not your lifetime, not your kid's lifetime. But he comes. Sure enough, he came. What a privilege it is to live on this side of that first coming. We have so much we can look back to and bank on, especially as we look ahead for his second coming. Of course he's coming back. He eventually came. And it was really hard until he came. There was longing and waiting and mystery and heartache. But he came. Christmas means he came. Which leads me to a few brief oddities, very brief. A few oddities or hidden gems among these 40 plus names in the genealogy. There are five women. That's one. There are five women mentioned here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. It was not common in these days for genealogies to include women. Like it or not, that's just the way it was. It went man to man to man to man. Head of household to head of household to head of household. And yet here in the plan of God, we have key women at key times Serving God's grand plan. Playing their small part. If nothing else, just providing progeny that would lead to the savior of the world. Five women. Several of whom were Gentiles. Non-Jews. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba We're not positive about her, but she was married to a Hittite. 
All this hinted at the inclusion, the blessing to the nations. The inclusion of, in blessing to the nations that would come full blossom with the arrival of the Christ. And be extended day by day as people go into the world to tell others about Jesus and make them his disciples. Several were Gentiles. And each of these women, in one way or another, were involved in scandal. They were outcasts. Tamar's story is Genesis 38, where she seduced her father-in-law to get pregnant. And from that encounter, if you want to call it that, she had Perez, who's also in this genealogy. Rahab was not only a Canaanite, she was a prostitute. And yet she believed in the God of the Israelites and cast her lot with them, with him. Ruth's scandal wasn't sexual, but she was a woman alone, in trouble, on the outs, until God's kindness was shown through Naomi and Boaz, and she would be the great-grandmother of King David. Bathsheba, she's just called the wife of Uriah in verse 6 to remind us she wasn't always David's wife. She was once Uriah's wife until she and David had an affair and David had Uriah killed. And then there's Mary. Mary. Oh, she did nothing wrong. In fact, she was quite godly. But she was no less a social outcast because of the perceived scandal surrounding that virgin birth. We'll talk about it next week. Isn't this just how our God works? Isn't this just perfectly in line with his amazing grace that he welcomes sinners the lowly, the outcast, the abused, the needy. Jesus is the hope for the exiled and the outcast. This is why he came. If you want to learn why Jesus came, just look at how he came. It's all right here. Yeah, Jesus comes from royal stock, to be sure, but he comes from rough stock because this is a sinful world in need of saving. Jesus came from sinners, though he himself was not a sinner. And he came for sinners. Matthew, the tax collector, who writes this, was one of them. One day there will be a book in heaven, apparently. It's, this is in the book of Revelation. We're told multiple times there that there's a book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And there in that book are the names of all redeemed sinners of all time. All the names of God's family, regardless of their ethnicity, ethnicity, 
Names were told that will never be blotted out. Names that were written there before the foundation of the world, all according to God's perfect plan, centered on Jesus. So I ask you today, what have you done with this Jesus? Will you receive him? Will you welcome him? Will you believe and bow before him? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came. We thank you, Lord, that you fulfill your promises in your timing, in your ways. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you not only came, but according to those old promises, you lived perfectly and died sacrificially for sins and on the third day rose victoriously. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lord, help us to believe and worship and speak of you freely and happily in this Christmas season. Amen.